We are here for an intimate evening. Um, we scheduled this as intimate, and lo and behold, it has, <laughs> it has worked out that way. We um, cut off the guest list at uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, seven. <laughs> we would have allowed nine, but yeah, there's um, a waiting list. My name is Kyle Beachy. Uh, I uh, am here with Dmitry Samarov, uh, and we are going to talk about his book, Soviet Stamps. But in order for that to happen, um, here's how this is going to go. Rather, Dmitry doesn't like reading his own work in front of people. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. Okay. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I, basically, so, I, I, I think any book event is a success where I've avoided doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. That's my primary uh, goal, so not to read. What we're going to do instead is uh, I have selected some sections from Dimitri's book that I would like to read. And I'm going to read, and then I'm going to ask him some questions. Uh, but uh, given, given that um, this is a sort of... A, a sort, we're sort of on equal footing here, right? We're in the same chairs. We're both sitting here. Both of our books are up there. Yeah. And yours is new and exciting. Mine is old and tired. Uh, but what I, what I would like to do, um, so that um, the, the several of you who are in this audience who might not uh, have any idea who I am, um, I'm going to read a little bit of my own work first, and then I'm going to read some of Dimitri's work. We're going to talk about work. Um, and we're is this from the slide or something new? No, this is something new. Oh, awesome. In fact, I'm going to introduce it right now. Can't this wait. Uh, so, w the the thing about me is I've spent the last ten years writing um, about skateboarding, which is um, not something I'd planned to do with the years of my life between ages thirty one and forty one. It was not <laughs> it was not exactly what I thought when I when I was age eleven and I started writing a skateboard. I, it wasn't really an investment in my literary future. Um, and uh, along those lines, I've, I've amassed a novel that has not sold, and I've, uh, I've amassed a collection of nonfiction that maybe will sell. We have no idea. Um, but I have found that um, writing these essays has been um, integral to my existence for the last 10 years. So uh, the most recent one that I've written um, is called Seven Small Bafflements. Uh, and I wrote it for a journal at the University of Chicago, which is called the Portable Gray. At the University of Chicago, they have this place called the Gray Center for Arts and Inquiry, where they are interested in all sorts of um, hybrid and collaborative projects, and they um, are recently interested in skateboarding. Uh, so this essay is called Seven Small Bafflements. It'll take me about eight and a half minutes to read. Um, and I'm going to read bafflements number two, four, and five of the seven. And there is a visual component, so please pay attention. <laughs> Bafflement number two, what is a stage? At the corner of Chicago's Milwaukee and Fullerton Avenues in the hot, hot, hot Logan Square neighborhood sits Liberty Bank. To the immediate west of this building is a 34,000 square foot parking lot where I and others like me will go after normal banking hours. Speaking structurally, the only real appeal of the lot are 10 parking blocks arranged into a rectangle beneath the blue line L tracks that slice diagonally across the space. Several of these blocks have been rub bricked and waxed by us or others like us, and they're the most obvious thing to point to as the reason we come, though I'm not sure that's quite the right word. And come to do what? I will try to describe our practice. We gather along the perimeter and take turns moving determinedly for the blocks. We stray by arbitrary routes across the space, getting our legs warm, working through familiar movements. We make cautious early attempts at new movements. 
We watch the ways that everyone else moves and know that we too are being watched. We plug fingers into our ears as trains thunder overhead, marking the city's time. We resist the basic assumptions of this and other cities. We fall in the blacktop of the lot, stains our palms, and we make eye contact with the others. So much of what we're doing, in fact, is watching. We stand or sit with our prior movements lingering in and about our bodies like an odor or glaze of sweat, a residual shimmering of the soul. We watch and laugh and applaud and we recoil when someone fails, like there is a string between the failing body and our own. I am not being coy, or not only coy, in avoiding the common name for this practice. To be honest, I fear the way its name will trigger assumptions of the very sort the practice aims to upend. It is a performance. Each human performer stands upon an individual stage that is elevated four inches or so from the pavement, on wheels. As is common to theater, the performance that we are watching and that we are doing occurs in the body on the stage. Less common is the way that each body will manipulate the stage on which it stands. These manipulations, in fact, would seem to represent a radical mode of experimentation. For example, we regularly spin our stage a half rotation beneath our feet like this. Or a whole rotation like this. <laughs> Other times we will flip the stage beneath our feet like this. In short, it is a theater of transgression and trespass. The architectural historian Ian Borden has written about our practice as participatory architecture, a system of behaviors that, quote, challenges the notion that space is there to be obeyed. The assumed normative purpose of these parking blocks, for example, are upended by our use of it. The language of theater allows us to go even further. By engaging the block as we do, sliding and grinding our stages against it, we infuse the block with a new purpose. It too becomes a stage. Bafflement number four, what do I want? When I was young, before I understood myself or my body, skateboarding taught me what it means to long. Even before that longing was complicated by adolescence, skateboarding shaped my dreams. It wrote the algorithm of my desires. I modeled my identity after young men who lived on plastic tapes inside the plastic cassettes scattered across the carpet in front of the television. Years later, I would for a time love a ballet dancer who liked to point out other women she was certain were dancers based on their turned out hips. During my first visit to the myofascial therapist, I hoped might help with my chronic neck and back and knee pains, I stood before her for three seconds before she nodded and said, you're regular footed. I am. And it seems that when I stand still, my left leg, which on a board is my leading leg, bears almost the entirety of my body's weight. One thing to say about this is that it's not good for my body. Another is that the cause of my left leg's burden is a 30-year record of habitually pushing with the skateboard with my other right leg. I'm still amused each time I recall how new it is. It was not so long ago that skateboarding did not exist. In attempting to write about it, my approach has more or less hewn to the shape and methods of my topic. I circle the thing, I jab and poke at it, and then I back away and sit for a time and I watch. I can summarize the conclusions I've reached during this decade of work thusly. Skateboarding is weird. I fear sometimes that it's wonder, the meaninglessness that is the source of its mystery is also its vulnerability. Capital loves nothing the way it loves a void to fill. 
The market is the seeping fluid that fills any fissure or space or hollow. The stories our culture industry tells about skateboarding, and with capital it is always a story, tend to be composed in a language of winning and losing. It is just so much easier to speak of the rings that spin around skateboarding, its offshoots and reverberations, than the activity itself. There's the culture and its effects on popular fashion. There are media objects produced about the activity, films, photographs, articles, and a global skateboard industry that, that grows and fluctuates between creative autonomy and corporate control. There is qualitative academic research devoted to skateboarding's applications in social work, philanthropic NGOs, and education. In all of these cases, there is always a satellite device, a conceptual tool or metaphor that limits the strange object and renders it more comprehensible. For me, that conceptual tool has always been literature. Bafflement number five, what is useful? Almost certainly you are familiar with the basic shape of skateboarding. You have a skate park nearby. You have taken your child there. You have watched and perhaps rolled cautiously around yourself. Soon the networks will air their coverage of the 2020 Summer Olympics where skateboarding will make its premiere as an Olympic sport. The commentators will tell you origin stories and they will explain things. This is called frontside. This is the motion by which an athlete executes a kickflip. Okay. But if there is one thing I'd ask you to remember after our brief time together, it is that no. Respectfully, no. <laughs> to borrow Annie Dillard's voice for a moment, these relate to skateboarding, but only as kissing a man does to marrying him, or as flying an airplane does to falling out of that airplane. <laughs> The strange ontology I mean by skateboarding does not survive transportation across the natural borders of its world. One can only experience it by experiencing it. Now you are thinking, but that is not so special. Don't other things work this way? Yes, sort of. Dance for one. But the comparison has its limits. Prompted to give a broad, inclusive definition of dance, one might say something like, the intentional use of bodily movement in a manner outside of convention and productivity. Similarly, a broad definition of poetry could be the intentional use of language in a manner outside of convention and productivity. An in-kind definition of skateboarding, however, would have to read the intentional use of a surface by a non-motorized four-wheeled lean-to-turn platform in a manner outside of convention and productivity. It is, in other words, one thing to cover a stage with dirt and quite another to dance across the Earth's soil. So we return again to the city that plays theater complex to skateboarding's many stages. Here I think of the language Don DeLillo gave to the aging visionary Richard Elster in his strangest and most static novel, Point Omega, a novel, incidentally, that I love so much and that no one else even seems to like at all. <laughs> the quote starts, It's all embedded, the hours and minutes, words and numbers everywhere, train, sta train stations, bus routes, taxi meters, surveillance cameras. It's all about time, dimwit time, inferior time, people checking watches and other devices, other reminders. This is time draining out of our lives. Cities were built to measure time, to remove time from nature. Time, I believe, is the city's most glaring assumption and the source of skateboarding's most important transgression. Quote, the temporality of appropriation, wrote Ian Borden, quote, is different to that of ownership. 
but different how exactly. I'm not sure. I do wonder, though, speaking of theater, what it could look like to somehow make a stage out of time. Okay, so that's the end of me. Um, and that, that's sort of what I think. Um, so I, the, the other good thing about reading that is it gives uh, both Dimitri and uh, the rest of you a sense of where I'm coming at when um, we start talking about Dimitri's essays. Um, because the essay is a really slippery kind of form, right? There's a lot that can be done with it. There are really no rules to it. Uh, when I teach the essay, I like to draw on the board. I guess I write on the board. Um, I write poetry on one side and um, narrative on the other, and I then very dramatically write essay right in between them. And then I'll sort of draw lines to, to both narrative and poetry and say, like, the great thing about the essay is that it can be narrative. It can tell a story. Or it can be this sort of totally liberated form of prose writing that has no obligation to storytelling and can be, like poetry, wonderfully um, useless and um, uninterested in time and uninterested in storytelling. Uh, where, why, why did I say, I don't know. <laughs> um, Dmitry Samarov uh, has written a book, has published a book himself called Soviet Stamps um, that is about how he himself became an artist. Uh, through written vignettes, artwork, and family photos, the book charts Samarov's emigration from the USSR in 1978 onto his attempts to fit into American society and peripatetic attempts to earn a living while continuing to create artwork. It is published in a limited edition foil-stamped hardcover. It is a beautiful book of 800 that are signed and numbered. Um, and his bio is wonderful. Dmitry Samarov writes dog portraits and paints book reviews in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. He is the author of four books. Um, hack, Stories from a Chicago Cab, published by uh, University of Chicago. Where To, a hack memoir, published by Curbside Splendor. And Music to My Eyes, published in conjunction with Tortoise Press. Um, and here's how I would like this conversation to go. Um, I'd like to start talking a little bit about writing. I would like to talk uh, then about art making, and then I would like to talk a little bit about making a living, if that seems okay to you. Cool. Let's okay, do great. it. The other thing I should say is that I've known of Dimitri for the entire time I've lived in Chicago. Like when did you had, come here? In 2003. Really? Yeah. How did you? I came to art school. I came to art, oh, the because, art Institute. Oh, because you were at the Art Institute. Yeah. Yeah, but you, but also you were like just about. Your name is like about. It's like in the ether, and you put, you know, you write, you draw things for the reader. You draw things for various people. But I hadn't. I don't think I've actually met you until last year. Like shook your hand. We must made, have met before. We said hello. Yeah, like it. It's hardly well, yeah, meeting. An ex of mine was your boss for a time at at the art institute. That's true. That's like, that. That's where. Yeah. No, but that's that's where I. I got your book from her. Yeah. I read your book because it was in her house in which I lived for a time. <laughs> um, I have, I have and one. And I joy, enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. One, two, three, four. I have five sections I'd like to read from Dimitri's book. None wow. are longer than like two Fuck pages. It. All right. Um, and, and if it's okay with you guys, hi, Bear. If it's okay with you guys, I'll just read some, and then we'll talk a little bit. And then as time goes on, I'll read others, and we'll talk a little Get, bit. Like, before you go on, just let me thank you for... So this is the second one of these that I've done yeah. uh, in Chicago for this book. And the first was with another uh, colleague of Kyle's, uh, Christian... We don't Tim say his name. Oh, we don't? No. Oh. <laughs> well, 
Who, well, but that's the only thing he said about himself <laughs> through the whole talk. That was it. Whereas you generously kind of gave the audience a feeling of where We're it was you're people. coming from. Yeah, so thank people. you for that. Sure. <laughs> uh, Christian Tabordo is another, an incredibly good writer. Yes. Um, do you have copies of Ghost Engine here? You should get it. It's a really good a short story collection. Um, okay, yeah. so this is from uh, this is from the introduction to Soviet stamps uh, by Dmitry Samarov, um, and this is wonderful. This is going to be weird for you, I hope. <laughs> Let, let's see what happens. This is the story of a guy who stayed on the sidelines and watched others without participating. The distance gave me a clear and unsentimental view, but it kept me from feeling a part of anything. Whether at a family, school, religious, or civic function, I tried to stay outside the experience. This inherent flaw, or quality, depending on how you choose to look at it, has allowed me to paint and to write. I don't know how to be any other way. Is it possible to write about a thing that happened to you the same way you'd write about it happening to someone else? I'm not one to wallow in emotional depths. I worry that stirring up any of the murky garbage inside, w inside of me will make me unable to function and continue to make art. And that's what it's always been about for me, the work. How to maintain enough of a, a physical slash emotional equilibrium to keep cranking things out. It's my only valid excuse for continuing to draw breath. It's rarely in any of the work explicitly, but most of my pictures are attempts to nail down some feeling of place. The where is at least as important to me as the what, and certainly more crucial than the why. I've never been one to start a painting with much of an idea, but one way or another, most of them end up being about being in a particular place. They're a record of being there. It's especially important for me to get some sense of groundedness across because I've never had any firm grasp on where it is I'm really from. I spent the first seven and a half years of my life in a country that no longer exists. I didn't spend enough time there for a sense of home to have taken root. My memories of the place are spotty and often augmented, if not outright supplied, by my parents, grandparents, and family friends. Stories that loved ones tell about your childhood are loaded with good, bad, and sometimes self-serving intentions. Like any story that we tell, these are really stories about ourselves. So when my mother tells about the time I nearly got crushed by a toppling cupboard while climbing up to reach a, a dessert perched on its top, it's more a story about her as a mother than about me as a child. She has recounted this episode dozens of times, but I have no memory of it. The best thing I can do with such stories is to use them as a jumping off points to recount the events I remember myself. Photo albums are fraught with questions too. While they pinpoint definite moments, the significance of what they depict can be open to interpretation, speculation, and outright confabulation. I've looked at dozens of these albums to gain some sense of the events they more or less record. The one advantage I have is the passage of time. These pictures are 30 to 40 years old, so even though they are pictures of me, I have a critical distance. Distance is necessary to create any kind of art. Otherwise, emotions are too raw or close, and you're hindered and blinded by the task at hand. All right, so it seems to me, Dimitri, mm -hmm. um, that there are at least three <laughs> things working here concurrently. One is about yourself, right, uh -huh. and like who you are. Another is the visual art that you have spent, it seems to me, the entirety of your life making in some uh, way I, or another. I don't have a memory of not doing it, so it's like... That's how I deal with the world, yeah. And the third sure. question is the question of writing, which is the mm. process of that, that seems to be some sort of intermediary between selfhood uh -huh. and art making. 
Um, and so the, the, the question that just lingered with me throughout all of this is about, well, God, where does writing stand in this for you? If you look at the back of the cover of this book, it says, How I Became an Artist. Um, and it is largely, it is largely a collection of memories that the artist slash author has, has chosen because they in some way or other seem to lead you from the path of leaving the Soviet Union at age eight, Seven and a half, yeah. Seven and a half. Um, and coming to the U.S. At that, at it, that age, halves are important. Halves yeah. are very important. <laughs> yeah. you know. It's like under six foot, half inches. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm 5'9 and a little. Um, I want to read, before I, before I ask you a, a question proper, though, I want to read one more paragraph. Okay. And it goes like this. So why write about the past at all? The simple answer is that it helps you make sense of the present. Everything you've done and every place you've been alters where you end up. This is where being from a place that no longer exists comes into play. Emigrating from the Soviet Union is the central event of my life. It always will be. It lurks in the background of everything else that's happened to me. It's the foundation of everything that I am. Coming to an understanding, or at least some peace, with immigration's mystery is the reason I'm writing this book. There's probably no way to be free of one's past, but I hope there might be a way to be less haunted or hindered by it. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about haunted and hindered? Uh, it's. I mean, it, it was all. It always seemed like a weight. This this past, like where where I'm where I'm from. Uh, and uh, well, to to loop it back to like where did writing come in? So writing, writing came in very late. Uh, writing came in uh, as like a side effect of having a strange job out of art school, which was driving a, a taxi. Hmm. Uh, and my first two books are about being a, a cab driver. Uh, but it it was because the things that would happen in the cab were things that I couldn't draw. Uh, I had to write them down after a time. Uh, so the first thing that I ever wrote uh, that wasn't a homework, like a homework assignment, was, was when I was about 30 in uh, the year 2000, which was a, a first attempt at a zine called Hack. And it was about my three years of driving a cab in Boston at that mm. point. And it was mostly images uh, done from memory, which is also a different way. So primarily I like working from life, from looking, from direct observation. But for this book, obviously, for the zine, I had to make these illustrations. And each, each illustration was like a, a jumping off point for the text. Mm. Uh, and it was, a, it was a zine from before... Uh, before computers. I was very late to computers, but in the year 2000 I didn't know how to turn one on, uh, so I, I did them with a man, manual typewriter and uh, at Kinko's, hmm. literally cutting and pasting things. Uh, so that was my first like kind of furtive attempt at, at writing, at creative writing. So um, when you say, I'm, I, might, I'm, I might be inclined to make more of this than you, you mean by it, but when you say there were things from the cab that you couldn't paint. You had to write them down. Is that about, is that about the things, or is that about the difference between painting and writing? Well, I literally like so up to then, up to that job, I I figured I was okay expressing myself or dealing with the world, uh, just just painting pictures or drawing. Yeah. Like you know, I carried a sketchbook around. I did. Yeah. It was it was okay, but in in the cab, for whatever reason, it was probably partly also as function of age and kind of growing older and the the variety of people and experiences that I had in that job of seeing seeing the wor the way I, I saw the world 
I felt I wanted. I mean, it and it took me about three years after I stopped yeah. to even make an attempt at it. it. Was like, oh, I I need to record this in some way or market that like it it mattered, right. and I'm gonna forget. So right. I have to write something down. Uh, and I was uh, very resistant to it, and sort of. Uh, I mean, I I didn't even really admit to myself that I was a writer until like well after the first book was published. I mean, you know? I understand that. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. no real joy in being a writer. There, <laughs> um, but I do I do want to talk a little bit more about the writing itself because the 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 first thing that I'm tempted to do with your writing almost always is compare it to Studs Terkel. Yeah. Who was another Russian Jewish immigrant mm. from a family who very importantly moved. Do you think of Studs Terkel as a writer? Well, see, this is interesting. <laughs> I think of I him don't. as a writer in the yeah. exact same way I think of you as oh, a writer. Okay. Despite the fact that you have four books, I think of you as a visual artist. Uh-huh. Right? Because Good. mostly when I see your stuff. <laughs> Most people don't, actually. Well, <laughs> do you, so do you, do you think of Studs Terkel as a writer? And No, I think of him as an oral historian. Huh. But yeah. do you think of yourself as a writer? At this point, yeah, I have to. Okay. I mean, but I'll always be a writer or an artist first, second, and third, and and then there's this writing thing. Huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so talk about the form a little bit, right? So we have this book is comprised out of 32 mini essays, and it's illustrated. It's got archival work from uh, your actual art from your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You are an inveterate saver of things. You have well. I, I rated uh, my parents like co- collection of stuff. So my parents' house is basically like a museum of my art. Uh-huh. It's, it's very strange to go home to visit them because every room has art that I made, uh, and I've lived with this for many years now. But in the basement of of my parents' house, uh, they they had saved some of my school papers and school doodles and yeah. stuff, and that's where I got. A lot of the stuff, the source material for the images in this book. Okay, so yeah. the images accompany slash punctuate slash frame um, 32 of these miniature essays. Yeah. Um, they're all about four pages average. They average about four pages in length. Some are shorter, some are a little bit longer. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that form, the sort of this length of essay. Why, why is that something you gravitate to what is it about that form that you like i think it i i I don't know that it's a choice i i do i do what i'm able to do it started so it started with the on my my whole writing what what i do for writing happened from kind of uh describing sort of vignettes or short episodes that happen in the taxi yeah so those those were like a couple of pages and so that's that's the form that I, I learned how to do this on and you know in putting together the first book the first cab book uh, it was the first time I dealt with actual editors yeah now that was at University of Chicago and it was a very thorough process and that's where I learned how to put together a book uh, so that's sort of my model of where it all started and it's in in the I think like in the second in the second cab book the the pieces get a little bit longer the 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 short pe- components of the book get a little bit longer, uh, but then with the third book, the music to my eyes, uh, they're they're back to kind of short pieces, yeah. all prompted by drawings. So it goes back and forth, but yeah, I can't. It's hard for me to uh, have like I don't know, like have a. I, I don't really 
I've also never taken an actual writing class. Right. So it's it's all been like experience and yeah. also like now I, I make part of my living doing reviews of various like yeah. journalism of various kinds and that's never that that long. So I think of it as these little pieces that add up to a whole. Um, well they certainly do. I mean I, I don't I don't want to like just There is an intentional order to these things. It's it's mostly chronological but not necessarily du- things double back sometimes but th- there there was a like an internal internal kind of rhythm yeah. and, and things pass off to each other and, and connect at least in my intention the, you know no yeah. no it worked um i'm okay. going to shift now from <laughs> writing into art making uh, which okay. is phase 2 if for those of you keeping notes right. um <laughs> and so i i want to i want to read this section because you brought up kind of school and how you haven't ever taken a writing course and as someone who teaches a writing course and has taught at the art institute of chicago it was very interesting for me to read your reactions to um essentially artistic pedagogy mm-hmm. um and i i don't think i'm spoiling anything to say that you're against it <laughs> like what, uh, generally speaking just as a uh, a sort of like a asterisk kind of thing when i went there which was the very early 90s it it was a much smaller institution than the one that you knew yeah and the the academic classes were pretty much a joke yeah i mean they were below high school my high school level i went to a pretty good uh public high school yeah and uh i found as far as difficulty and etc this is yeah this is like you know the the least required of the dummy art kids. But you, you know? also yeah. you also say you actually quote at least two, and I think there might be three teachers who have said to your face, "You you are unteachable." That, that, Which there is, was, a, it was a teacher at Parsons. Yeah, uh, that, that told me that. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm going to read a section um, from near sort of the middle of the book, which is around the time of my reading experience when I started reading this very selfishly, and I started thinking like, oh my god, I, uh, around page eighty, I got very very invested in this book. Oh, we good. can say more about that later. But here's what he says. It was a slog before, huh? No, it wasn't. <laughs> My first real art teacher was a set designer from Moscow named Alexander Okin. He'd emigrated in 1981 and started teaching me a few years later. I still have some of his drawings where he was showing me something about shading or anatomy or caricature. Some drawings had evidence of both our hands, but I can usually tell the marks apart. His work has a finished off polished quality, whereas mine was often ragged around the edges. Illustration is a way to flesh out an an idea or enhance the impact of the accompanying words, whereas art is a sort of reckoning or conversation with the world. Sasha and I always butted heads because our aims were so different. I wouldn't have articulated it like this at the time, of course. I just knew to resist what he was trying to tell me to do. Still, some technical and compositional skills, he stressed, made it past my defenses. You can't teach a kid to be an artist, but you can give him some of the vocabulary and building blocks he'll need if he wants to make a go of it. My mother used to drive me to Sasha's house in Winthrop, near Boston Harbor and the airport. It wasn't quite Captain Bob's shanty. His first teacher was actually a a TV painter um, named Captain Bob. (laughs) Kind of like a Bob Ross precursor kind of bob ross type thing like he would he'd draw animals uh in in half an hour so it wasn't quite captain bob's shanty but the area certainly had some of the same storybook maritime atmosphere his studio was in the attic and was filled with half-finished models and uh maquettes for the theatrical productions he was working on 
The studio was a kind of stage set in itself to me. I was about 13 when I started studying with him. I had little actual idea of what an artist's life looked like. This cluttered attic space was an early clue. The props, in-progress work, and darkness of the place left, the impression, left an impression. I realized that what an artist does is go into a messy room of his own and make things. Aachen's style owed a lot to Russian folk and literary tradition. There was some darkness, but also a lot of whimsy and sentimentality. The tips of figures and objects often ended in curlicues. It was this ribbons and bows tendency that clashed with my sensibilities the most. My drawings showed more struggle, mo more open-ended dissatisfaction and frustration than he liked to leave visible. The question of when a piece of creative work is finished can be endlessly debated, and Sasha and I rarely agreed. His designer's training taught him to bring forms to a level of finish that left no room for ambiguity. The purpose of design and illustration is to answer rather than question. You start with a preparatory sketch, then decide on materials needed, then methodically realize your idea. You don't just start to scribble or make marks on your paper, hoping to hit a nerve or a note that vibrates and dictates a reaction, a counterpoint. The unknowability of art making is just chaos to a designer. He has a job to do and marshals his materials and skills in order to get it done. An artist throws whatever he has at hand against the wall and hopes it talks back to him. There's not any rhyme or reason to it and everyone does it differently, which is why it can't be taught. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I love, this is exactly why I start, I start becoming so um, enamored and engaged with the book around this, this part. Um, and I, I wonder... If we are talking about art now, which we are, um, and we're going to segue into kind of making a living off of it, mm. a lot of what you're talking about with art seems to be this kind of chaotic, um, procedural procedural in the sort of uh, selfish, subjective way, right? It is mm. Each time you do it, it is a process, and you don't know how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and you are upfront about that. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, that sort of process and that sort of... Um, discovery that it sounds like art is for you. Um, first of all, as it relates to writing, do they do they stand in sort of the same place for you? Or are they both as chaotic, or do you approach them with different levels of knowledge about what you want? Well, to I, get out? I mean, I'm, I've got way more time in, in with with the art than the mm -hmm. writing. I think I'm yeah, I'm a lot newer, younger uh, a writer than I am an artist. You know, I've, yeah, I've, I've like thought of myself as an artist since, yeah, I mean, like grade school, you know, mm -hmm. like very shortly after coming to this country, really, like I ident identified that as like, this is what I do. So, but like the, the more I deal with all this, write this writing business, the more it gets integrated and the more, uh, that the writing and the art, uh, is then married in, with design into forming these books. So these last two books are the first two that I've actually kind of made soup to nuts. You know, I did the design, uh, I, 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 you know, I put it all together. Like every part of these books, it, you know, all the credit or blame pretty much, right. except for uh, the editors who worked on the text with me, which is like a lesson I learned from the university of Chicago that you really, really, really need to have other eyes on, yeah. on the words. Otherwise it, it's it's a disaster, uh, and the more different kinds of minds or voices, the better. You know, like think people that are different. You know, yeah. like the the last uh, editor or reader of this book was Christian Tabordo. We don't say his name. <laughs> <laughs> he who will not be named. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, and each 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 of those people lends valuable sort of like input and advice and stuff. But uh, other than that, uh, as I've moved, so yeah, my yeah writing quote unquote career has moved like kind of backwards. I started with a really reputable university press, moved on to a very shady indie press, <laughs> then on to uh, a, a even smaller press run by one person basically yeah. to full-on self-publishing which is this book yeah so it's all gone like sideways and backwards but uh in in this format i'm i'm sort of marrying all these different things that i do yeah uh, and at least for an affordable for you know for twenty dollars you get a a taste of what i'm about i think yeah i think yeah, you do with these yeah yeah um, these last two books especially yeah. and and i mean i think it's a testament to the quality of this book that i have probably about 60 questions I would like to ask you about. And I realize we're not going to get to even, you know, maybe three of them. Um, but one of the things that you do say in here that it seems to me very, very interesting um, is when you talk about art is essentially, you seem to say, like, you know, a thing that, first of all, not everyone necessarily is cut out for. Um, <laughs> Most people aren't. They, right. they shouldn't bother. I mean... <laughs> Why would I? I don't know why anybody would. It it's just so like as the your attitude towards right like the writer's life yeah is mine towards the artist's life. Like why would anybody choose to do this? Like if they could have do something else. There are like, many more sensible ways to live and an endless number of better ways to make a living. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but something changed though for you when you discovered. Um, drawing figures, right? When you went into figure class and became yeah. figure sort of, if I could, this is, this is uh, just a paragraph. But then I signed up for figure painting. As in the figure drawing class I took as a younger person at MIT at 16, something clicked. Unlike so many art classes in which you could do whatever you wanted, in this one you couldn't. Faced with a naked body standing or sitting in a room full of easels and other students, you had to react. It was a reckoning between what you saw with your eyes and what you knew with your mind. Your mind would complete a chair or a face or a lamp even though it was invisible in front of you. The battle was to shut that autocomplete part in, of the head off and really look. The results were often ugly and unfinished and would send us to the cafeteria to smoke and mutter to ourselves. Mm. And it seems to me there's got to be some sort of relationship between what painting a figure is like and what writing about yourself is like, right? I mean, you're, the mm. subject here is you, right? Like, you are this book. Um, I guess. And yeah, you I write don't know. about yourself very, very well. I do? Yeah, oh, I was thanks. saying to my wife <laughs> that I, I feel that I am totally... I don't have this gear of kind of just straightforward presentation of memory and associative movement. Oh, that reminds me sort of of this. There is an elegance to the way that you write about yourself that is... Um, on one level, it feels um, j just wonderfully straightforward, but then the cumulative effect of it, and this is another reason why around page 80 I was just overwhelmed, mm -hmm. um, you start to really kind of get a tremendous sense of who you are as a person, right? It's not just, oh, oh cool. and then this happened, <laughs> and there was the outhouse, and, you know, but yeah. when I think about this, I feel that I know you in some very intimate ways right now. <laughs> um, and I wonder if that's related at all, do you think? Is writing about yourself and writing about people easier for you than writing about ideas or writing about... Oh, I'm not an idea guy at all. I, I'm not a big picture guy. Like, maybe one of the other 
like things you were asking me about, like these short little pieces. That, yeah. Like I just I have no big picture ability at all. Like I see like directly in front of me, and I can concentrate. If if I have any like great like attribute is I can focus. Yeah. Like and I'll just like laser focus. I have tunnel vision about anything I'm doing, and that's all there is. But uh, writing about things that happened a long time ago, I think helped. Uh, like the thing that you read from the very beginning of the book about attempting to write about yourself as if you're like you're other people. Yeah. Like having the distance. Yeah. So I don't know if I could do it the same way or about more more recent times. Do you write yeah. fiction at all? I, th I'm I'm trying to right now. First first attempt ever. Yeah. Um, Say, can you say a little bit about how it's going, if you don't mind? It, it's fun. It, it's weird. I mean, so I'm working on this uh, book set in bars, and I'm currently one of my hustles is I'm a bartender, part-time bartender, and I've. It's a it's a job that I returned to after being away from it for almost twenty years, and this book I'm writing is set in, in two fictionalized bars, both of which very based on ones that I know and continue to work one of which I still work at can we can we name it yeah the Skylark uh, I work at the Skylark I'm there every Sunday uh, till hell freezes over uh, I will be there and it's like the best job I've ever had but the, the thing about what is different from that job uh, rather than uh, that uh, my job as a taxi driver which started up you know kind of launched my writing career is that I can't pretend to uh, I can't pretend anonymity like right. the people I see know me by name unlike my passengers you know I I know their names yeah, uh, yeah. like I'm an actual like part of their life like you know they're regulars that there's people that I see every week they, they're there every week so I can't uh, I can't write about them this, the way I can about strangers and then this book also has a bunch of autobiography in it, so I have to change names yeah. to protect myself and others. Uh, but it's very strange to do this, like, I feel like a ventriloquist, like, putting words into other people's mouths, these, like, characters. Like, I know it's not them saying it, it was somebody else, yeah. and kind of being okay with that. But I guess that's what, is that what fiction writers do? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's but still like it's this book is gonna be ninety five percent shit that happened. Right. I don't I don't know how to make anything up. Yeah. Like and I don't know I don't see any reason to. I mean like why would you make anything up? This world is so insane. I mean, why? <laughs> Do you need to like spaceships or what? I don't, I don't know. know. I think it's just an idea. <laughs> um, I want to read one more, one more passage. Um, and and. Did I answer any of your questions? You did, man. Okay, you're, cool. No, you're All right. I don't ask good questions. This is one thing I've learned as a professor is I ask... The, the guy whose name we can't use said in, that he attended a previous uh, live interview thing with me where he claimed I stonewalled the interviewer and didn't answer any of the questions. But that interviewer was Tim Kinsella. Who That's true. every stonewall. And I, I, I'm still... Put, like, I keep trying to pick that apart. Like, I, I don't... I didn't think I was that difficult but you know yeah he asked a bunch of tim kinsella questions but God bless him. Yeah, and he's great and he's um, a friend all right i'm gonna read uh, he is a friend uh, i'm gonna read page 138 to 139 very quickly um just to kind of i think give us 
a, a parting question about this book and how it came to be because I do mm. want to move to um, what what it what it means to make books and what it means to make a living as an artist in mm. uh, our current condition. Um, and this is you talking about being at the Art Institute. So uh, this is about the parents who send their kids and their, their kids go to the Art Institute. And you're speaking of the parents here, you say, they figure their children will get the weird hair, drugs, and rebellion out of their systems in a couple years, then chart a more sensible course for their future. More often than not, that is what happens. But not for the reasons parents assume. What all these, those kids with green hair and ill-fitting thrift store garb find out quickly is that making art is actually work. And work which no one will tell them to do at that. The discipline required to keep generating things with little or no outside direction or impetus is beyond most people. The structure and organization inherent in most fields is often missing in the arts. Each individual has to bring their own springboard, then jump off it if they hope to get anything done. This is virtually impossible to teach, so it's no surprise that very few art school graduates continue doing art after they get their diplomas. The statistic I saw had about 10% still at it after five years, then down to 5% after 10. That's as it should be. You have to really want to make art and want it despite getting no encouragement or being presented with any obvious reason to continue. There are many more sensible ways to live and an endless number of better ways to make a living. Remarkably, three or four of the people I was closest to at the Art Institute are still making work. Not all of them are still painting, but the medium isn't the point. The fact that they are still trying to talk back to the world in whatever way works for them makes them stand apart. When much of the culture encourages us to sit back and receive the barrage of images, information, and garbage from screens installed on every available surface, to react, much less offer one's own take, can be, sit, can be considered an act of defiance. I'm going to read that again. To react, much less offer one's own take, can be considered an act of defiance. Um, so I agree with that. Like I, 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 I agree with that, and I you know, take some comfort in it all the time. Um, I wonder if you could say, tell us a little bit about what it's like for you in the year 2020 now mm. to be working, to be living as a working artist, to be working Sundays at the Skylark, mm. to be taking commissions on paintings. Um, do you continue to love the work or is love kind of the wrong word for your relationship to it? Yeah, wrong, wrong word for sure. <laughs> but I will say that like if, if uh, you know, the years have mellowed me at all is that like it took until I was in my forties, probably when I thought it was okay to like do a commission. Mm -hmm. Like that was way below me. Like I got out of art school and I started driving a cab, and I figured like making money and making art would always just be separate. Yeah. Like and I, it's, I, I've always sold artwork, like more or less, every now and then, not for very much money, but like I never tried to depend on it as an actual way of making a living until. <clears throat> until like the last 10 years yeah. where, yeah. I, uh, and a lot of that had to do with, uh, driving a cab like 80 hours a week. So I measure everything I have to do now against that. Like, would I rather do that or, or paint a dog portrait, which yeah. is like a, a chunk of my living is doing pet portraits right. and yeah, I'll do a pet portrait because it's easy and I can do it quickly. Yeah. Uh, and is it, is it like, do I become like a whore doing that? Yeah, uh, to to an extent, you know. Yeah. But you have to. Uh, like, I'm I'm not that young. I don't have 
endless energy. Uh, well, so I mean, you have you have to make you have to make uh, allowances and compromises all the time. There's also though, yeah. I mean, the the part of the equation you're kind of leaving out of it, and I think maybe shouldn't be left out of, is the tremendous joy that a portrait of a pet brings to whomever has just spent the X number of dollars to get it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. as opposed to driving a cab, which is a very utilitarian, like, you yeah. need to get there, I will be the one to convey you. What you do when you paint a pet portrait, and you can yes, think that, of Yes, that makes it the pill uh, a lot easier to swallow. Yeah. That yeah. the people actually appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. But, like, if, you, if you're going to go on a, just a, like, kind of dry, like, economic level, basically, like, I, I get paid better to pour beers than, like, any kind of art that I've ever done. Per you know? hour, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, if you're going to just, yeah. Right. And I've never, like, I've worked service industry since I was a kid. I've never had a salary job. I, the, every job was always a means to an end, like... Yeah. I picked the jobs so I, that I could leave at any moment, you know, because I knew they that they didn't really matter. Uh, and I, I, I love I, I love working at the Skylark, but like, does it give my life meaning? Probably not. Right. You know, like it's it's as good a part time job as I've ever had. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like, on you know, by any like American metric, like you know, as a whatever. As a career, whatever, mine's it like a total failure. Like it just is, you know. <laughs> like, like I, I, you know, I have no savings. I have no, you know, like I have nothing. Right. But, you know, I mostly do what I want, and uh, that means something to me. It, yeah. it doesn't mean very much to this society, but I don't know how any other way to be at this point. And it's like too late to change. What, what would I? I don't know what I would do. You yeah. know, if yeah. I didn't have a, at least a couple of like these dumb creative projects going, you know, yeah. the books and paintings and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how sustainable it is. I'm going to ride it out as long as I can, you know? <laughs> uh, on that note, are there any <laughs> questions from the audience? Yes. Sorry, I wrote it down. Oh. Right. So when you discovered, like, when you finally went to University of Chicago Press and, and you were working on the book and you discovered the process of making a book and how involved that was, did you find any joy or art in that, in that aspect of it, working with an editor? Well, it was a totally new experience. It was like, it was like a novelty. Like, I, I didn't know anything about it at all. Like, I'd, and actually, in that whole experience, kind of like, was, it was such a charm process. Like, they came to me. I didn't, like, there was a guy there. There was a fan of my work they'd seen it so so i i started uh when i um went back to driving a cab in chicago uh i started a, a blog called hack and uh he had read the blog and then bought like a handmade zine that i'd made and told me that like it should be pitched as a book so i was kind of walked through the process like the whole way like they came to me and helped me the whole time uh and it's been you know it's been pulling teeth ever since really yeah. uh, and I got totally spoiled by it you know <laughs> so what about making this one which as you said is soup to nuts your creation and that yeah. uh, has the the obvious look of being created by a single person right I mean this is not something that a, a focus group put together this is no uh so so like basically what happened after so I had that hack was the first book it came out in 2011 and since there process was so involved it took about two years 
from signing a contract to the thing coming out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kept, I was still a cab driver, so I kept gathering more and more material. I knew there would be another book. Yeah. Uh, and that, that second book, uh, was, uh, you know, it was, I, I thought that with a track record, with a book that did, did okay on a, a major university press that I could get like an agent or like somebody interested and I was, uh, I was sorely mistaken. Uh, I, I ended up uh, running a Kickstarter to finish the second book uh, with no publisher or anybody until Curbside Splendor showed up and they were like a, like a worst case scenario, like last choice. Uh, and, and it ended up being a, a fucking nightmare for many reasons. You can read about Curbside Splendor mm. elsewhere. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so I had this book with, uh, that the second book uh, that I mean to their credit there were there were a couple of people working there that like got me at least uh, a couple of uh, book tour gigs out of town mm -hmm. which UFC press didn't spring for right so that was my first experience of like doing something out of town although I had to pay my way right. to do it uh, but I I I wanted to have like I I. In the meantime, stopped driving a cab, and I uh, and book writing was like part of my life now. Right. And I started writing about my childhood. So, actually, the the Soviet stamps was actually supposed to be the third book, not the fourth book, and I finished most of it uh, about five years ago. Hmm. But uh, in the meantime, I I try to get an agent. I try to get uh, you know other publishers interested in stuff I was working on. To no avail until uh, until uh, Jerry Brennan at Tortoise Books bit on this idea of a, a book about uh, this other thing I do, which is draw people playing music. Mm -hmm. And so Music to My Eyes, which is the book before this that, that Jerry helped publish, uh, kind of goes back to 30 years of me drawing bands and the memories connected to it. And that was the first book. In the reaction to the bad experience I had with Curbside, uh, which involved uh, a book designer who somehow managed to mash all the text of the book into like a what looked like a compound German word, which was <laughs> like I don't know how he did this, but it took three of us to disentangle it. And I, when I open the book, I can still see it the yeah. words mashed together. Yeah, like he really fucked it up. I said, well, if this guy who was probably getting paid something to fuck up a book I can fuck it up myself <laughs> so I you know I signed up and got InDesign for a month or two and taught myself like book layout and I did that book uh and it was really difficult but rewarding like it scratched an itch you know and yeah. and because of doing all that and then finding uh uh, a printer in in Michigan to print it w with the cover the way I wanted like my my own idea of what a book is yeah. uh, 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 that that gave me the idea that like well I have this other thing that's been like eating at me that like yeah. nobody wanted like that everybody rejected but like it needs to be out in the world so I can go on yeah. and that's what Soviet stamps is <laughs> well, <laughs> this the horrible like ugly child you know like locked in the back room you know like here it is here it is world <laughs> and i'm just happy that it's out there uh I, yeah no I, I think it's very good that it's out there Kristen. hello dimitri hi i have a question in two parts okay the parts aren't related to each other 
This is your fault. You just said a thing that I would like to follow up on, and then awesome. if there's time, the original question. Um, you just said your idea of what a book is. What, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what your idea of a book is? What is a book? I, I think, well, uh, it, you know, if, if you take this as evidence, uh, a book has a hardcover. It's got, it's got uh, writing and images, like, embedded in, in the actual cover. Like, and it's something, uh, my, my friend Kelly actually, in reaction to the music book, said it reminded her of like a Nancy Drew book, like, because it's got end papers. It's, a, it's a, like, it's a particular kind of object, in a way that like a lot of contemporary books aren't. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, and yeah, so this is the second book that I've done about this format, and I, I think I'm going to stick with it until I get sick of it. And I want to perfect, I think I'm not all the way perfect to perfecting it uh but it's yeah it's it, it's just a, as any aesthetic form you know there's there's sort of, there's parameters and you have to set yourself limits and for whatever reason this this is what i came up with <laughs> yeah may i with heart two okay um, oh right. also yeah, written, know, written right? look at that it's totally different. note takers yeah, I know. amazing <laughs> you said earlier um that there were things that happened in a cab uh, that you could not draw, is what compels you to write. Um, what can you draw that you cannot write? Uh, what? I I think I mean, I I attempted both in in this book and in the previous one, which is like this, kind of like ultimately, uh, like you're doomed to failure to write in one art form about another, like to express. No, it's the dancing about architecture mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. and yeah, like what happens when you're drawing is is way it, it's not you can't put it in words and in my case what, what drawing or painting uh, while being faced with like a person or a scene like at, that's alive that's changing all the time uh putting that i don't know i i try not to put it in words i don't know it's 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 a it's just a yeah it's a different experience yeah yes is there any sort of like Ekphrastic connection for you then between like the if, if there's something that I, you, I I missed the word used before. I'm not even sure that I said it right. Is that did I say it right? He did. What what is it's, it? I don't know that it's word. Like, uh, I learned it from him, but it's inspiration. It's his fault. It's ekphrastic. It means I think inspiration drawn like from one form used for another. So you go to a gallery and you write poems about painting mm. or something like that. Is that at all part of the process? Because it seems like you're describing something that's very binary. Like you can. You're either able to write about it or you're able to paint about it. No, but like in my books, so all my books have a lot of art in it, some more than others. This one actually has less than some of the other ones. Mm. But that, that music book has 160 images in it. This one's got, I don't know, like 70 or 80 or something. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I, because I come from like visual art, I, I always use it. That's the jumping off point for like almost everything. Yeah, uh, but because I can't, like, I don't have the training or the mind to do, like, a, a comic book or a graphic novel or whatever. I wasn't raised with it. I can't. That's, a, it's, that's very different than what I'm doing. But in my books, the images and the words do interact, and sometimes, sometimes they're just illustrations. Sometimes, sometimes they're more than that, uh, the images. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a changing an ambiguous relationship i think i love uh, this one 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 thing that happens just to give an idea is 
one of these that's often the images will start the chapter. They'll kind of set the tone for the chapter. And one of them is a, a figure who seems to be reaching for a fish. Yeah. And then you come to find <laughs> out that it was the only painting that he completed during his entire time. Like At Parsons, once. my first semester of high school. Yeah. <laughs> and that you just hate the painting. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't love it. I. Yeah. I, I think I threw it away. I, I've yeah. thrown away a lot of stuff. Yeah. I, I threw away almost everything I did in my one semester of grad school yeah. at Indiana University. I threw everything in the dumpster. I actually, learned years later that this kid who was an undergrad saved one or two of them. From, yeah, but it was it. It was such a good feeling to throw that shit away because it was such a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> That's when I knew that I was done with school. Was, yeah. yeah, and didn't want to be part of it. Yeah, school, higher education. Yeah. Um, are there any other questions, <laughs> or, or shall we? Did you ever give any thought into how Sasha's view of art and like how art manifested in his life was formed so much by like Soviet culture and like there being a place for culture and art? And like being like a well-paying job, effectively, like that's a loaded statement. Well-paying, yeah. but like you could actually make a means, like actually being a painter in mm. like many Soviet cities mm -hmm. or in Soviet communities because arts were so embedded. Whereas like fast forward to now in the United States, the economic landscape is so much different here. How culture and art is perceived is so much. Well, different. you ever like given a lot of thought into that? A lot of thought, but I, I would never romanticize uh, Soviet times like for any reason uh like as a as a thought exercise for people living in america it, it might seem nice but it the 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 reality on the ground of that life uh and, and sort of one of the, one of the things uh that was like a, a spur like a jumping off point for the, the soviet stamps book was like sitting with my parents and like sort of interviewing them or like talking with them about their memories of their life this this double life that they always had to lead, which was the public life and the private life, uh, and uh, that everybody led there. Uh, and yeah, on the one hand, like you didn't have to worry about making a living, pretty much, but you couldn't. You had no no movement, no no chance to advance, or like you know, you, just to go from one city to another city was not like you you couldn't get in your car and go there. You just couldn't. It was not allowed. So. <laughs> Uh, people uh, express themselves in the margins or like, you know, like no no real writer ever published their own work except in like either translation or children's books in Russia, for, exa for example, you know? So yeah, each, each system has a lot of problems. <laughs> and, and like on, uh, but yeah, on many days, uh, one of the things I've been saying lately is I'd be happy if the government just like, pulled up the truck to my house, took all the art away, and, like, cut me a check. Or, like, gave me, like, an allowance or something. I'm at that point, but that's, like, like a middle-aged guy getting tired, you know, like, <laughs> of having to struggle, you know? Would that, would that be, would, could that actually, has it ever worked? I don't know if it actually has, you know? I don't know. But, yeah, yeah it's true. In this, in this country especially, like, art is not really part of... Like not valued in everyday society, it just isn't. Uh, so it it puts me at odds with the society in like a fundamental, basic way, mm -hmm. which you know once again makes me an outsider. Uh, which, like you know, some people think that it's like a like 
I'm sort of like a contrarian. I don't want to just hold myself apart, but it's I, there's maybe part of that is true, but not not a lot. You know, like it, it'd be nice to fit in. It'd be nice to be valued. You know, like what's wrong with that? Who doesn't want to be like valued? <laughs> so I, I take it where I can get it. It's not so nice of you people to show up here for this. You know, like that. Like that's all it takes, really. Given that the the fall of the Soviet Union is kind of pointed to as the moment when capitalism like secured its grip on the future of uh-huh. the universe and stopped being any other option for our future, um, let us revel in that by <laughs> supporting Dimitri if we are at all able by nice purchasing his tie-in. book. Good job. Uh, and also our venue tonight, this independent bookseller uh, that has their own margins to wrestle with and their own yeah. undercutting behemoth bastard corporations to fight. Um, so if we can, um, do whatever we can to support our local artists and our local um, facilitators of the arts. Uh, uh, I would like to thank Dimitri, please, for this evening. I'd like to thank Kyle. Thank you for all the great questions. And the amazing readings uh, yeah. and Teresa and City Lit um, yeah. for having us in thank, thank you, you for very having much. us and that's it that's all I got cool let's alright thanks y'all done